Welcome to another week, another calendar year, Tom, of This Week in Government Affairs. As always, I'm Jerome Thomas, joined by uh, my far better dressed uh, uh, co-chair and co-host, Tom Firestone. I was shoveling ice off my driveway yesterday, guy, or uh, this morning, guys, so that's why I'm dressed like this. Uh, I just didn't get changed. Um, great way. It's actually going to be a fun way to start 2022. Um uh, Tom is going to talk about something um, that we as a group have been talking about for the past couple of weeks, the uh, Elizabeth Holmes um, conviction, but more appropriately, sort of where the potential way forward is on the sentence, because that's what everyone's looking at. Um, and and we, we got some, some interesting stories to talk about there, and uh, Tom will lead us through that. And then I'm going to talk about, really, there was a, a report yesterday or a, a whistleblower payout yesterday by the SEC to a whistleblower relating to overseas conduct. It's not something new, but what it did get me thinking about is I started thinking about, well, where do the SEC whistleblower reports come from? And then I started comparing and looking at the reports region and frankly by GDP ranking and I had some interesting observations that I thought I wanted to share with you guys really nothing more than food for thought to begin 2022 but I guess without further ado happy 22 Tom and why don't you take us away buddy thanks Jerome so as Jerome mentioned about a week ago he started a chat discussion among the white collar partners to Baker McKenzie as to what sentence we thought Elizabeth Holmes was going to get the predictions were all over the place from a high end of 15 to 20 years to somebody predicting a year and a day. Doesn't mean that our partners are not informed on this subject and don't know how to calculate sentences. What this shows is just how much discretion federal judges have in a situation like this, despite the fact that for over 30 years now, we've been living with the federal sentencing guidelines, which were supposed to create uniformity down to mathematical certitude in sentencing in order to reduce sentencing disparities. 30 some years later, we're exactly where we were. Sentences are unpredictable. And let's look at how that could play out in Elizabeth, the Elizabeth Holmes case. Um, she has, so under the sentencing guidelines, every sentence is supposed to be calculated based on a mathematical formula. It starts out with the base offense level. Every, every crime is assigned a base offense level. And then it is added to or reduced from depending on other factors, um, whether or not if it's a drug case, it's the quantity of drugs. If it's a fraud case such as this, it's the amount of loss. There are other factors that play into that. If the defendant pleads guilty, they typically get a three-point reduction. If they were the organizer or leader of criminal activity involving five or more people, they get an enhancement. If a gun was used, there's an enhancement. If somebody was injured, there's an enhancement. And all of that gives you a final total, which is then put onto a sentencing table, which yields a sentencing range in months. That's how it's supposed to work, and that's how it did work until the 2005 Supreme Court decision, the Booker case, which said that the guidelines are no longer mandatory. That would be unconstitutional, Supreme Court said. They are advisory. So now what we have is a situation in which judges work with the guidelines. They start out with the guidelines analysis, but they have a lot of discretion as to whether or not to apply the guidelines. They have to justify any deviation from the guidelines, but they have a lot of discretion. So let's just look at how this might play out in the Elizabeth Holmes case. She was convicted of uh, several counts of fraud, three counts of fraud, one count of conspiracy to commit fraud. Under the guidelines, the base offense level for that is seven. Now that's almost no sentence, but of course that's only the beginning, not the end of the story. 
In a fraud case, you enhance, you increase the base offense level based on the amount of loss. Now, the amount of loss in her case is also discretionary. Sometimes judges uh, apply the actual loss. Under the guidelines, you can use the intended loss, and the court is only required to make a reasonable estimate of the loss. So you can see how elastic this is, how much flexibility this gives judges. We take the most conservative loss calculation in her case, which is the loss resulting from the three wire fraud counts that she was convicted of, as set forth in the government's proof, you have $150 million loss, which under the guidelines is a 26-point enhancement, which gives you, and again, this is the most conservative reading of the possible sentence, a uh, adjusted offense level of 33. That translates under the guidelines into 135 to 168 months in, uh, in uh, prison, about 12 to 15 years. Um, but that, again, that's not the end of the story. I think there are a couple other enhancements that are quite likely here. One is for her being the organizer or leader of criminal activity. She was the CEO of Theranos. Everyone was taking orders from her. There was abundant evidence at trial of that. Um, organizer or leader gets you a four-point enhancement, so that would knock her up to 37. There's also a good chance that she would get a two-point enhancement for obstruction of justice, perjury, or some combination thereof. There's evidence in the record that she attempted to deceive regulators. She also testified at trial, said that she never intended to deceive anyone, a fact which was obviously rejected by the jury who found that she did intend to deceive people. So I think there's a decent chance she'll get some kind of enhancement there, two-point enhancement for that. So that would give her seven, uh, six more points, knock her up to a level 39. 39 under the guidelines is 262 to 327 months a lot of time. She could also get some other enhancements. Um, for example, there's a possibility of an enhancement for a scheme that was intended to deceive 10 or more victims. In addition, the court could imply, uh, apply the, not use the actual loss figure, but the intended loss figure, which could go, come close to a billion dollars based on the government's evidence at trial. If you apply all of those enhancements, she'd be at level 43, which is the highest level under the guidelines, a life uh, sentence of life imprisonment. But again, these are discretionary, not mandatory. And if we look at some of the studies that have been done in the, of the guidelines application in similar cases, you see just how much variance there is. Um, there was a study by the Wall Street Journal reported um, based on US government statistics that 41% of defendants sentenced under the guidelines for white collar crimes received prison time within or above the recommended range, 41%. What does that mean? That means 59% did not. So it's an almost equal split as to whether you're gonna get below the guidelines, within the guidelines or above the guidelines. Even more startling is a study also reported by the Wall Street Journal by somebody named Michael Yeager, who adds, um, heads a sentencing consulting firm called Empirical. He did a um, he did a study um, which of he's under his calculation Holmes would get level forty three life imprisonment. He did a study of one hundred and two cases involving white collar defendants at level forty three, and what he found is astonishing. Of the ones that he studied, thirteen percent of those convicted white collar defendants convicted at level forty three got life imprisonment. 13%, 15%, i.e. 2% more, got sentences of five years or less. And there were even two who got one year. So the chances of getting life imprisonment 
or less than five years, if you are a level 43 white collar defendant are basically equal. So it shows you just how much flexibility there is here and how much range there is. And that explains why Jerome, when you and I were weighing in with this with all of our partners, we came out with such disparate predictions. I think she's going to come in below, I think she'll come in under 10 years. I would predict seven or eight years. And I think that she's got some, she's going to make some motions for a downward departure here. Um, I think she's got two arguments that she's going to really, I mean, she'll argue on a lot of grounds, but I think she's going to argue coercion. Um, she had made a lot of noises, mostly pre-trial, summit trial, about how she was abused by her co-defendant, Mr. Balwani, whose trial is, of course, coming up. And there is a provision in the guidelines related to coercion and duress, but it's going to be hard for her to use. Basically, what it says is if the defendant committed the offense because of serious coercion, blackmail, or duress, under circumstances not amounting to a complete defense, the court may depart downward. Then it said, or it also says ordinarily coercion will be sufficiently serious to warrant departure only when it involves a threat of physical injury, substantial damage to property or similar injury resulting from the unlawful action of a third party or from a natural emergency. So I think that's one argument she's gonna make, but the way the guidelines are written, it's going to be hard for her to make that unless she can show real that she was forced to do this. This is sort of the, um, the Patty Hearst case, not that it worked for her, but there's a video of her in the bank with somebody from the, um, from the Symbionese Liberation Army pointing a gun at her while she was robbing the bank. That's the kind of thing, if you don't commit this crime, you may be shot. So I think she'll make that argument. I think it's going to be a hard argument to make. She'll also undoubtedly make the argument that she has a newborn child born shortly before the, um, the trial started. And under the guidelines, there is a downward departure available for extraordinary family circumstances. And I remember when I was a prosecutor, every defendant moved for a downward departure on the grounds of extraordinary family circumstances. We would almost always oppose these on the grounds that the, to warrant a departure, the extraordinary circumstances must be truly extraordinary. Just, not just, oh, a parent is going to be leaving their family alone. Um, it's typically, these arguments are typically unsuccessful unless you can show a unique function in caregiving that the defendant provides um, and that the other family member would be deprived of were the defendant to be incarcerated for a long period of time. Again, though, the court doesn't have to find that standard now that the guidelines are advisory only. The court will, however, be informed by the case law and precedent um, under this. Somebody at Stanford, um, there's a Stanford Law Journal article looking at the uh, frequency of downward departures for extraordinary family circumstances. And it found that after Booker, the percentage of cases in which downward departures for family circumstances were granted doubled. It's still very small, but it's now much more likely that somebody could get a de departure on those grounds. So bottom line is there's going to be a lot of litigation around this. She, of course, is going to appeal the sentence. All of this is based on the assumption that she loses the appeal and does come up with uh, come up for sentencing. But there's a lot of room for the court to play with, and there's a lot that the defense lawyers are going to work with. I would anticipate they will have expert testimony on the uh, intimate partner abuse syndrome on the effects of a child and having their mother, a newborn child, having their mother incarcerated for a um, particular, for a lengthy period of time. Of course, after the addition to the guidelines analysis, the court has to apply the so-called 3553 factors. These, however, however, of course, quite vague. They are 
the nature and circumstances of the offense, the history and characteristics of the defendant, the need for the sentence imposed, the sentences available, the sentencing range established under the guidelines, any pertinent policy statements, the need to avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities among similarly situated defendants, and the need to provide restitution to any victims of the offense. I imagine under that, the court, the defense lawyers will argue, look, her whole ability to commit the, the goal of sentencing is to incapacitate the defendant, to prevent them from committing similar crimes. Her whole ability to commit these crimes was a function of her role at Theranos. Theranos has now been, it doesn't exist anymore. She's not gonna go back and be CEO of any other startup in Silicon Valley. She has not, she does not present a threat to society if she is incarcerated. Therefore, your honor, give her a, the bare minimum sentence that is needed in order to accomplish these sentencing aims. So my prediction is somewhere around seven to eight months, but um, we will have to see. But the bottom line, the moral of the story is that you can't make something that is not mathematical, something that is inherently subjective and has a huge human factor into something that can be calculated with mathematical certainty. Sentencing is not physics. Every case has a subjective factor, a human element. Courts can, must, should incorporate all of that into their sentencing analysis. So what I take away from this is that the guidelines were, or maybe a good idea to try to provide general guidance, but you cannot rely on them because these things are always going to be case specific and subjective. But that's my prediction. Jerome, I know you had a higher prediction. We'll have to see how it all Yeah, yeah, I'll give my prediction. <laughs> I originally started with 15 and after getting browbeaten by all of my uh, more esteemed colleagues, I, I came down to 12. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'm not a former federal prosecutor, but I do have experience in this area. And I sort of look at the range. I kind of use, I always use in these cases, the, the Skilling sentence. And I realized Skilling was convicted of, of more counts originally than, um, than uh, Elizabeth Holmes was. And I really, there were different charges, but, but Skilling's sentence was 24. Obviously, it was calculated under the sentencing guidelines using many of the same criteria that the judge will use in, in this case here. Um, there's some that the judge will use here that didn't use in skilling, probably. Um, but then side, I just go through from my experience, um, remembering watching a, a you know a guy who ran a Ponzi scheme uh, or an offering fraud, I should call it, when I was at the SEC. Um, get seven years for roughly a $4 million, you know, offering fraud, right? There are other things at issue that, so if I sort of bookend it, you know, if someone's getting, you know, seven years for, a, you know, roughly $4 million Ponzi scheme and Jeff Skilling's getting 24 years on, again, different, more charges and different type of conduct, sort of, I, I put it in the middle. I originally was at 15, nudged it down to 12. I wouldn't be surprised um, if, if, the, the judge comes in on the higher end, all, but also based on some of the feedback I'm getting from some of our partners who live and work in that space out in Northern California, it wouldn't surprise me if the sentence came in far under that and I end up losing the friendly wager um, that we bet. So um, we'll see. Anyway, um, it's one of the, the, the it's one of the fun things about doing what we do is we get to have intelligent, enlightened discussions with people who are incredibly smart, often that much smarter than you, and you can come to reasonable disagreements on very serious questions and frankly questions no one has answers to. They tell you have answers to right now, they're lying. No, no one knows until the judge finally rules. 
That is that is exactly right. And this, on that, this will be precedent set, setting for white collar cases going forward because it's just got so much attention. The judge is going to have to make some really tough decisions, and I think that this will set precedent for white collar sentences in the future. Absolutely. So we'll keep you guys posted on that. Um, so let me take us home. So want to talk about whistleblower issues. So uh, yesterday on January 10th, the SEC announced uh, two separate awards of uh, uh, to th so two separate awards to three whistleblowers totaling four million dollars um, who provided information that assisted in the resolution in two covered actions. I, I want to talk about the first one. So the first order, the SEC gave an award of about 2.6 million to a single whistleblower. Um, this whistleblower who first reported internally before then reporting to the committee, uh, according to the SEC, provided significant new information during an existing in investigation. So the SEC apparently was already investigating this, but this whistleblower provided new information in an existing in uh, investigation that alerted the SEC to misconduct occurring overseas. It's the overseas part that caught me, right? Given obviously what, what we, our firm and uh, our practice group does for a living oftentimes, we, we spend a lot of time working on investigations in front of US regulators, but that involve overseas conduct or overseas evidence. The SEC said that the evidence uh, of the overseas conduct would have been difficult to detect in the absence of the whistleblower's information. Um, no information was given as to the percentage of, of what the award um, related to to the to the um, to the to the, 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 the financial remedies. Remember, it can be ten between ten to thirty percent of monetary recoveries in any covered action. The SEC has been very uh, close to the vest on its calculation here, as it normally is. Uh, the SEC uh, gave its rationale for the award. It said, as I mentioned, initially the whistleblower reported his or her concerns internally before going to the commission. Uh, and that going to the commission, that information significantly contributed to an existing investigation. I think that's something important to remember um, for folks out there in uh, not only law firms, but, but in-house. Um, this is a message that folks can go, whistleblowers can go to the staff during the pendency of an investigation and give new information that aids in enhancing that investigation that's currently ongoing. The whistleblower didn't have to give information that launched the investigation. As long as that information substantially assists the SEC uh, in investigating and ultimately resolving the matter, that person will be subject uh, to receiving a whistleblower. Um, the, importantly, the, 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 the claimant revealed conduct uh, of which the staff the SEC staff were not aware. Um, the whistleblower provided the staff, SEC staff, with information that helped it develop, quote, an efficient investigative plan to discover the full extent of the wrongdoing. Again, substantially aiding the SEC's investigation is one of the elements that the SEC looks at here. Um, and uh, Finally, that the information assistance was particularly significant in that it helped the SEC staff obtain evidence of wrongdoing that was occurring abroad, which would have been difficult to acquire in the absence of the whistleblower's information and cooperation. Um, so again, SEC very much saying, look, you can give us information in the midst of an investigation that's already going on. Give us new information that substantially assists our investigation, particularly new information that we didn't know about, 
you're, you're going to be eligible for an award. They're also obviously continuing to announce and market that they are on the lookout for whistleblowers who give information relating to overseas conduct. Again, none of that is new information, um, but it's, again, always stuff to be mindful of. Uh, the SEC, again, trumpeted its whistleblower program, noting that since its inception in 2012, it's paid out $1.2 billion in whistleblower rewards to 241 individuals. Um, uh, and so, you know, we talked about this. Um, but what caught my attention was this announcement related to overseas conduct and how it dovetailed with something I was looking at late last week which was in preparing for an industry meeting regarding um, uh, anti-corruption and compliance risks in a particular region of the world, I was asking myself, well, let's talk about whistleblowers. Let me look at whistleblowers. Where do SEC whistleblower complaints come in from a geographic standpoint? Um, and um, how does that compare to the size of that economy, right? Because oftentimes people assume that the, the bigger and more developed the economy is, the more involved um, a U.S. company would be in that market, the more likely it is that, um, that, that, that whistleblowers will come out of that market, right? That's one school of thought. And when I started looking at the data, Tom, I was, I was surprised by a couple of things. One, um, and it goes really to the risking engaging of in-market risk of whistleblower reporting and frankly, how you assess risk from jurisdiction to jurisdiction within a region, uh, the, the need to not treat a region as a monolith. For example, let's talk about Latin, right? Effectively known or uh, you know, actually known as Latin America. And we'll, and we'll consider that Mexico, Central and South America. Um, you know, we, 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 we've all sort of heard and seen stories about, you know, how, well, there's obviously a significant U.S. company presence in Mexico. Um, it's just south of our border. Uh, and, and so you would, you would expect a lot of business activity, as we know happens, of U.S. companies in, 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 in Mexico. And in fact, we know that to be true. Um, it also wouldn't surprise anyone that the numbers coming out of Mexico from a whistleblower account standpoint aren't high. And I looked at uh, the, the reports that came into the SEC uh, in fiscal year 2020 and 2021 into Mexico. And those numbers, um, 15 reports came in in fiscal year 2020 and 17 came in in fiscal year 2021. So remember that 15 and 20, 17 and 2021. And then literally, just luckily, I saw a big bar, right? I was looking at the bar charts. And I saw a big bar and I said, well, what are some of those big bars? And then I said, oh, Colombia is one of those big bars. In fiscal year 2020, there were 48 complaints to the SEC coming out of Colombia. And fiscal year 2021, there were 85 complaints. Um, nearly, well, if we look at it, that's, you know, doubling or potentially even close to, you know, you know, you know, not quite tripling, but close to tripling what Mexico is giving to the SEC. Yet Mexico's economy as by GDP, the most recent data available, is 15th. And Colombia's is 38th. Again, we can't use, none of these are sort of, you know, definitive data points, but they all, I think, taken collectively can be held data points. 
Um, and it drove home the point, Tom, when I was looking at it, is that you can't treat regions as geographic monoliths, right? Um, I, I think, you know, people, and I think it's natural in some sense to look at Latin America and say, what is our compliance risk in Latin America? And again, you made the good point before this, Tom, um, that, you know, compliance risk, oftentimes people look at the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index, look how red it is, and then make that determination. Well, that's one data point, but an equally helpful data point is, well, how much economic activity is there in that jurisdiction, right? Right, Chad, you know, the, the, you know, Chad is unlikely to present significant anti-corruption law risks to global multinationals because there's not a whole heck of a lot of business being done in Chad. On the flip side, in, a, in Mexico, which is 15th in the world in GDP, you would expect a lot more corruption risk to be present in Mexico, especially given that it's our southern neighbor and there's a strong economic relationship. But then you look at the numbers and Mexico pales in comparison to Colombia. And Colombia is no slouch uh, from a GDP standpoint. It's 38, uh, you know, in the most recent data. But, but Colombia is spitting out over the last two years substantially more reports. In fact, uh, Tom and everyone, it's interesting that you might even be surprised to know that Colombia rivals India. Last year, Colombia had more whistleblower reports than India. 85 Colombia, 81 to India. And in the year before, there were 48 coming out of Colombia and 43 coming out of India. Colombia is ranked 38th on GDP. India is ranked fifth. Um, and we all know there's, there's a significant economic relationship between the United States and India. And frankly, India follows that common law background of, of the United States. There's a lot more familiarity with the way government agencies work and the way the federal and state regions are set up. So it doesn't surprise me, given experience and given what I know about India, that there are reports coming out of India. But what, but I always ask the why. What, what is it about, for example, Colombia that makes it comparable to India from a reporting standpoint? Frankly, what makes it comparable to Germany from an economic for, or from a whistleblower, whistleblowing reporting standpoint? And how do you treat that from a whistleblowing standpoint, right? Like how, how do you account for if you're running a, a, a regional compliance program, the fact that the, in reality, you know, or you should know that there's probably greater risk overall from a compliance standpoint in Mexico, given that the operations are probably gonna be bigger, um, given, given that there is far closer economic, um, you know, uh, relationships between the two countries, and given that a lot of the Latin American operations for US multinationals are run out of Mexico, but nothing's coming out of Mexico relative to Colombia, relative to India. So again, it struck me that, um, you know, and even I sometimes fall prey to Tom, right? I look at, I, I look at regions as kind of a, a monolith. I say, well, um, you know, we know Brazil is active and Brazil, for example, there were 20, uh, there were 32 complaints in last fiscal year, 2021 and 23 in 2020. Again, um, closer to Mexico, but still far more, but still Colombia is, is, it's just, it's lapping 
these countries, and, and they're all in the same region, and they're all a part of what I would think the same um, regional compliance assessment that companies would need to would need to um, would need to engage in. And, and, and so, um, looking at that, there were there, there, there were some interesting figures. I guess, um, Tom, would you be surprised to hear that Kazakhstan has more reports than Japan? Then where? Japan. I, Kazakhstan, you, you would be. I would be. I would not think there are a lot of people yes, well, reports to the SEC. Kazakhstan has had eight reports last year. Japan had seven. Kazakhstan is ranked 56th in GDP. Japan, three. Wow. So as I, you know, I, you know, I, I was kind of geeking out over my international relations with an economics background, really digging in these charts, comparing GDP to the numbers that came out. And there were a lot of surprises, right? And I don't know that this chart gets as much pub as maybe it should be, at least in sort of the international investigation space, because I do think you can tell a lot about um, how what regions are far more likely to cause you real issues from a whistleblowing standpoint and from a government investigation standpoint from this chart. Um, what, what I don't see, Tom, and what I think takes a couple of years to work through the system is how many of these are actually warrant enforcement action, right? The SEC does not say of the 12, 10 resulted in enforcement actions. And it takes a few years to work its way through the system. And you might not ever really know whether something in particular in this chart resulted in enforcement action. You'd have to use some kind of macro analysis to see what cases two years down the road, three years down the road filed by the SEC reference conduct in one of these countries. And it's not a great tool. Um, you could layer on top a whistleblower report that references conduct overseas, but they're not, the SEC likely is not going to reference a particular jurisdiction. So there's a lot of data that's missing here, but there's a lot of information I think if you want to dig in here that I think can help inform a, a, a more detailed and a, and a smarter risk assessment for where you think and where you need to pay attention from a resource standpoint and, and where you can maybe even say, look, um, we, we do have a uh, a whistleblower reporting system. And what I'd be interested to know is whether companies, their internal reporting systems match the statistics we see here, right? Do they get three times as many or whatever? Do they get as many or more reports from Colombia as they do from Mexico? That's stuff that we, again, we don't run whistleblower systems for companies. We don't know, but I would be interested to know um, how companies' internal systems match up with the statistics um, on page 38 of the, the 2021 fiscal year uh, whistleblower report. So again, um, more questions than answers, but I did want to take some time to talk about that. You know, it's a fascinating subject, Jerome. And I mean, your point about regions not being monolithic is extremely important when you talk about Latin America. I work in Eastern Europe a lot. Eastern Europe technically includes Belarus as well yeah. as uh, Estonia, um, two radically different environments from a corruption perspective from a risk perspective. Um, so I think it is important to look at these on a country by country basis. And the other thing is when we look at the risk that a country presents, we obviously start with the TI index, but the frequency of whistleblower reports from those countries is also important because what gets you in trouble is not just misconduct, 
but misconduct plus a report. Um, so that I think is important to keep in mind. And then also I think it's important to keep in mind the political relations between the US and the law enforcement local countries because some countries will not cooperate with DOJ or send them information, some will. Um, that's all a function of the political relationship. So when we look at country risk assessments, we've got to, I think, we start with TI, but incorporate these other factors along the lines of what you're talking about. So a fascinating, um, fascinating study and something well worth keeping in mind when we advise. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm literally as you talk and I'm listening and I'm staring at this and I'm to discern more trying. I feel like I'm back in college writing a term paper. Um, it's fascinating stuff. And, and just again, take take from this what you will. Again, take from both of the discussions we led today what you will, but we thought it It'd be sort of interesting to share with you guys sort of the stuff that Tom and I and our partners talk about in the manner that we talk about it off camera. I mean, this is these are real conversations that we and our partners have. And, you know, you know, if you have any any questions, follow up on either of these points. We'd love to talk to you guys about it. So keep the questions coming. Keep the comments. Keep the viewerships coming. So I guess with that, Tom, nicely done. All right. Thank you. All right, everyone, take care. Gathering crowds, take us home.